0: Tonight we will be in Psalm 130. If you'll please turn there with me in your Bibles. And when you are there, if you'll please stand for the reading of God's Word. And it reads, A song of sense. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord; for the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be you may be seated. Tonight we are going to continue our study through the Book of Psalms. Ruah Church is one of our convictions that we do exe- exegetical preaching, which means we pick a book and we preach through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so we take a hiatus during the summer months um, to do Psalms. And so. For those of you who may do not know, those of us who have an opportunity to preach, we choose a psalm that we want to preach from. And so a couple months ago when I knew this would be true, um, a song that I was listening to a lot was I Will Wait for the Lord, Psalm 130 by Shane and Shane. And um, as my study through Isaiah, the Lord is gracious to teach me this this theme of waiting. And so I picked the psalm. However, um, as I have studied this psalm more in preparation for tonight, it comes with a very hefty uh, letter of recommendation, if you will. There are many people in church history who this psalm was their particular favorite. Favorite. Um, you look at guys like Augustine. This was a particular favorite of Augustine as well as John Calvin. Um, other people who favored it a lot was John Wesley. Actually, this psalm was instrumental in the story of John Wesley. Um, he was a pastor and actually an unbeliever, unconverted pastor, interesting enough, to use his own language, his own words. And it was going to a church and hearing someone preach over this psalm, actually even the the song being sung in a hymn that started him being converted to true and genuine faith. Um, This was a favorite psalm of John Owen as well. And actually, whenever he, John Owen wrote his sermon when he preached over this, he actually then wrote a 353 page book over this psalm. And so I cannot do this psalm justice tonight. Um, Both I am limited in my wisdom and my ability but also, time um, doesn't permit me to rant on and on and on. And so I, I would encourage you guys, not just tonight, but anytime um, we preach, any passage we go over, Scripture is so depth and goes so deep that it's worth studying far more than just what a sermon can do it justice for. And so I hope that, um, as, as I say, as I do, try to do justice, um, that you would, in your own devotional, in your own time, look to study deeper into this text and see the richness of it the Lord has within it. I'm going to break this, um, this psalm up into four sections. We're going to have verses 1 and 2, which will be our, the petition, the cry of the psalmist. Verses 3 and 4 is the confidence of the psalmist. Um, verses 5 and 6 is the testimony of the psalmist. And then verses 7 and 8 is exhorting, the exhortation of the psalmist. This is considered a, a penitential pilgrim psalm. And so penitential, in the sense, that it is one of seven psalms where is a straightforward um, repentance, where the psalmist clearly cries for repentance. Also, there is a, um, a level of distress, and there's only seven of those in the entire book of Psalms. But also, it's a pilgrim psalm. And since that, when uh, the pilgrims of the Jewish faith would uh, send to Jerusalem to go for the yearly feasts or the different festivals, this is one of the psalms that they would sing. And the pilgrim psalms start in uh, Psalm 120 and carry on to Psalm 124. Or one thirty-four. I'm sorry, and one thirty being one that falls into it, um, and so we can imagine this is a song that Jesus and his disciples sang on their way to the Passover, on the way to the temple, um, and so that's what it is. That's what it's called. So, starting in verse one, out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. So the psalmist very clearly identifies where he's at. He is cr- he is crying out from the depths, and this. We can take this as like a literal, he is in a canyon, he is in a valley. However, um, for all of us, although pretty much everyone in here is under the age of 30, we know what it's like to live this life and to experience the depths this, this life has to offer. Not any one of us has, has escaped suffering or hardship or trials in our lives. And the psalmist here very um, clearly identifies himself as being one who is in the midst of the depths, in this place of suffering or hardship. And this is the human experience. Scripture makes that very clear. It doesn't matter what um, age you are or what generation you've ever lived in or what country you take place or if you're rich or if you're poor, um, the, the suffering, the trials, the hardship is something that none of us has escaped this life without having. And the depths can oftentimes be made worse by our own doing um, because it's in the depths that then we start to believe lies. We start to be easily deceived. Um, we, our experience isn't aligning up with what we know. And um, we start to question God, like, God, are you actually good? Are you sovereign? Why is this happening? What is going on? And so the depths are clearly a bad place that no one wants to find themselves in. But then, um, it's worth asking a the question then, is how did the psalmist get here? And how do we, in our own trials and suffering hardships, how did we get there? Certainly, um, Scripture is clear that there is Satan who is, alive and active, who's working against um, the, the Bride of Christ and is doing all that he can to deceive us and lead us astray. And certainly there are um, illnesses that are uncontrollable, that are unforeseeable. There's even um, just natural disasters that are, um, can kind of be random, that, that there's no way to project or to understand when it's going to happen. However, um, the understanding, though, here of the psalmist crying out is actually, it's his own doing. The reason why he is in the depths is because of his own actions, his own decisions have led him to it. And isn't that the truth for um, most of our lives as well? Most of the time that we experience some suffering, hardship, and trial, yes, certainly, um, like I said, all these other external factors take a place. However, a lot of times it's actually our own doing, you know, whenever... Um, The alarm clock goes off, no one's forcing us to stay in bed. Actually, we joyfully will hit snooze and sleep in as long as we can. Or, you know, we tend to be more selfish or greedy and have our own best interests in in mind. And so then in our relationships, whenever they start to get broken or there's damage or conflict within them, actually, it might be our own lack of being intentional and pursuing into it and just our natural tendency to be selfish and greedy. we're very lazy. We meet all these things. All, all of our own sinfulness leads us to experiencing um, the, the depths that is talked about here in Scripture. And so it's important because we must have a biblical understanding of what man is. And the Scripture is very clear that we are um, fully evil and wicked. And even baby Calvin back there, as pure and innocent as he is, and uh, Voddy Baker would say he's a viper in a diaper. You know, no one... No one has to teach him to cry for more food or, you know, or teach him to lie. It's like that, that's a natural disposition of man. That no one has to teach us how to do bad. We just know how to do it inherently. And so scripture is very clear that we aren't partially good or, or fully good, but rather we are evil, we are wicked, we are depraved. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can understand it? And it's also important because this is, um, not what culture says either. The world we live in is saying that actually the, the people who do evil are the few and far in between. It's only the, the Hitlers, the Mao's, or it's, it's a certain handful of people who are truly wicked and, and just above anything else that we ever could be. But the everyday person that you meet with um, is actually good and right and pure in their intentions. Um, so they say it's partially good. And also another thing that culture per, uh, perpetuates into The world is saying that um, we are victims it says that you know it's not your fault that you're experiencing what you're experiencing Um, that it's you know it's your ancestors or it's a system or it's someone else but it's not you Um, it's so easy to just blame other people and to look to other people for the reason of for the experiencing for the sufferings and trials and hardships that we are experiencing and it's ironic because the culture is also one that says, do whatever you want and there's no consequences. Love who you want to love. Eat as much as you want to eat. You know, do whatever you want and there's no consequences. And this is, um, I think, the temptation within all of us, likewise, is to whenever there is things in our lives that are negative or that are, make us uncomfortable, we don't like, we tend to push the blame to someone else or somewhere else that is not ourselves. And actually, if you go back to the garden, you can look at this. When God confronts Adam as to why they have eaten the fruit, Adam says, Lord, it is this woman that you have given me. And so not only is Adam blaming Eve, he's also blaming God for the situation that he has now put himself in. There are now consequences for his actions. And so likewise, um, we are our greatest enemies in a lot of ways. Um, But also we tend to push the blame, not take ownership over our own actions and behaviors that led into us being in the depths. It's important. And I I drive that point home because it highlights greater um, verse two when it says, "O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If it is not our fault, then we do not need mercy, but we need justice. If someone else wronged us, then we ask God for justice. If God is the one who brought this upon us, then god we don't need mercy from God. We need God to right the wrong in our lives. And so that's, that's why I, I get to where I do about the psalmist talking about the death and that being his own doing. is because he then rightfully calls out to God for mercy because of, of the ownership, because of recognizing it's his own fault. Um, and so, so it's, very common though, um, that we can blame God, that we be, feel entitled to God's help, that we can demand him, that he, he becomes this genie in a bottle. Um, and as we grow in our faith, we can almost become complacent and just wrong, wrongfully viewing God as someone who at our aid, at our will, is there to help us. Um, but the, the reality is if we are our own worst enemy, if we are the ones who puts ourselves in the depths time and time again, then we also can't be our own hero. We can't be the one who comes in and save the day either. And so people love to blame God, um, and because of that, they grow in their hatred of the circumstances. And we see this actually throughout all of Scripture. Um, We see this in the Old Testament, New Testament, language of the clay, speaking to the potter, why have you made me like this? And and James 1 also even highlights, let no one say that God has tempted him or God has deceived him, for God can tempt no one, nor does he deceive anyone. And so thus is the rightful cry for the psalmist for mercy from God. And so who, so it cries out from, again, emphasizing this more, um, how, how radical it is that then God would go on to like answer this cry for mercy. Because if, if God asks us to be obedient in this way, in X, Y, and Z, and if we do the opposite of that, and then we get led into despair, and we, it's like, I have a lot of examples, unfortunately, to pick from my life, but I just think about growing up, my mother telling me not to um, climb up in the, in the barn, in the loft, and I did, and I, I had this huge uh, nail scratch in my arm, and I'm bleeding, I'm gushing, and, you know, I, I think I'm dying because I'm eight years old, and my mother, like, she had no, like, she doesn't need to help me, like, she doesn't need, like, she can tell me, like, I told you so, and just let me be, but out of mercy, she comes to my age, she comes to my side. she helps me, obviously, she bands me up, she kisses it, everything, you know, and so, and same way with God, like, like, God doesn't have to show us mercy, there's no need for God to show mercy, as is our own doing that has led us into this despair, into this downward spiral, it's also important to cry, uh, to recognize who does the psalmist cry out to, And so you see the language here, O Lord, in the end of verse 1, and O Lord, hear my voice. And if you notice, unless you have the legacy standard, um, there's capital L-O-R-D in the first Lord, which is Yahweh, God's covenantal name, his intimate reveal name. But then there's also, um, beginning of verse 2, O Lord, lowercase L-O, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, And that is Adonai, um, which is the reflection that God is master, he is creator, he is ruler over all. And so you see the psalmist not turning to his friends, not turning to money or possessions or wealth or anything the world has to offer, but rather he's turning to God and to God alone. And that's important for us um, because scripture isn't like a self-help book and we don't need more money to fix our problems and we don't need better friends to, you know, fix our problems. Like we need God and we need God alone. Whenever we in our own foolishness and and strength and wisdom go into the depths, we need God to be the one who saves us, who picks us from it and leads us um, to him. And it's ironic because when we do look to, um, you know, material possessions or to people not God to come alongside and help us, actually, the false hope in those things actually lead us deeper into despair, lead us deeper into the depths. And so thus, it has to be God and God alone who we look to, who we cry out to. And you can even hear it in the language, like out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voices of my pleas. Like. He, he's begging, he's pleading with the Lord. You hear the desperation in his tone, in his language, in the words that he used for God and God alone to be the one who saves him and delivers him. Again, so why should God show any mercies to us? Um, and so it's, so obviously, no, obviously. So then moving on to verse three and four, God does show mercy. And how does he show mercy? And it's, I think it's, worth noting, he doesn't give deliverance. He doesn't remove the consequences of his sins. Um, He doesn't give them like a get out of jail free card or a self-help, but rather the Lord's mercy is to turn the gaze of the psalmist off of his current circumstances and to up to the heavenly to God and see God rightfully and see who God is. And so um, uh, maybe my first charge or, or worth reflecting over in your time is to ask God to constantly show you your need for mercy. Um, we don't outgrow this. We never, we never escape it. We never not need it. But rather, um, as we continue and down this life and to live day by day, um, we'll be even more. I, I, I hope we pray. I, pr- I hope and pray we see our greater need for mercy. Um, And it would be a wonderful thing for us to gather that and to understand that now in our youthfulness um, and look to and cling to and ask and beg and plead the Lord for His mercy. Um, His mercy not only reminds us of who He is, but it also assures us of who He is. God doesn't just remind us that He is God and that He is sovereign, but He also assures that to us through and by His Spirit. And the fruit of this is seen then in verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark inequities, O Lord, who could stand? Um, again, in verse 3 and 4 we're seeing that uh, the psalmist is calling out to O Lord, in verse 3, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, and in verse 4, uh, capital L or, in the verse 3, sorry, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, Adonai, and so we're again seeing that uh, the psalmist is crying out to God, rightfully so, for mercy. And God then is now reminding him and showing him rightfully who he is. And you can see that, the fruit of that is reflected in the language, in the words of the psalmist. As he says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the, the, there's so many, so many things being like connotated here, so many, uh, not baggage, but just uh, meaning or, or weight behind these words and recognizing that it is God and God alone who is the righteous judge. And that His standard, His uh, standard of holiness, his, his plumb line of righteousness is so far and great and beyond anything we could ever grasp or imagine. And where He is versus we, where we are is an incredible chasm. We, we are so unlike God in all of our ways. We can't even begin to fathom who God is and how he has revealed himself and how great and perfectly righteous is he and how set apart he is and even to like draw this chasm even deeper the connotation uh, behind iniquities if you a Lord should mark iniquities is like hidden sin, secret sin and so it's your thought life, it's your desire, you know I I think we're all well aware of our, our sinfulness and our words and our actions but God's even more so aware of our thought life and our actions and how truly wicked and deceitful our hearts are And to just, again, to grow that chasm even greater as to how holy and blameless and set apart God is from us as wicked and depraved and deceitful human beings. And so we stand condemned before God, and the psalmist rightfully recognized that. We stand guilty. We stand unworthy. It's, um, you know, it's like we're being tried as murderers and we still have the blood on our hands. There's just no excuse. There's no hope. There's, we're, we're dead in our sins. And then the question I have is like, do we believe this? Um I think very not easily, but um at times I think we can grow complacent where, for whatever reason, whatever season of life we find ourselves in, we view ourselves as more self righteous than what we really are. And that we think that we deserve an audience of God, or we're entitled to God's help in this way or that. And we somehow think that we have earned this or we are now in a place of righteousness that God should show particular favor to us um, in light of who we are, not who we are um, with Christ. And so there is this gap and there is a tension between God's holiness and the, um, the unworthiness, the impurity of man. And, and I can only imagine how much more it's drawn out right now when this is the psalmist, is a man who is dead in his sins. He is, he is experiencing and living with the consequences of his sins. And that is like the reminder of this chasm, this gap. And so to feel this gap in his tension, I think it's good because um, we recognize then that our own wisdom and strength led us first into the depths. Um, it is, let me think about what I'm trying to say. When God is holy and blameless in all that he does, and all he knows is to do perfect justice, and all that he is is faithful and loving, we can very quickly realize how our actions and our thoughts and our words aren't, and how far we quite fall short of. And that can draw us, I think, into deeper despair, into deeper depths. And so to feel this chasm then is to rightfully um, prepare our hearts to, to come and to worship God. Um, we do this for communion. Uh, we, we have the meditation before the service. We also do this for communion. Like we give an opportunity to confess your sins, to rightfully see ourselves for who we are, so that then when we come to the table and we taste, we, we take in remembrance, and I hope and pray that you experience God's mercy and grace, it's all that more sweeter. Because if we become self-righteous, if we come thinking we're fine or we're good, then we don't need God. We don't need a savior. We don't need mercy. We don't need his grace. And so God's mercy actually is to reveal to the psalmist how great and holy he is, to actually in, in a lot of ways cast him out so that then the grace and mercy then he experiences of being restored the, and renewed the salvation the joy of his salvation, as it talks about in Psalm 51, can be all that more greater, can be all that more sweeter. So, um, yeah, would we confess our helplessness so that we can taste and experience his grace all the more? And then this is rooted, though, in this confidence the psalmist now experiences as being delivered from the depths into verse 4, as it says, "Oh, uh, but with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. And this, this one verse um, is a lot of people argue one of the most glorious passages in the entire book of Psalms or in the Old Testament as this Psalm is called a Pauline Psalm. And since it's one of few that specifically talk about um, unmerited grace without actions, without words, without deeds, it's just God's grace. It's just a forgiveness of sins apart from anything that the, the author has done or, or written about or even said. And so we see this with um, the spirits, both with you. The, there is forgiveness and the confidence of that. There is forgiveness of sins, and this is um, popular throughout all of Scripture, as we know. It says in Isaiah forty three twenty five, "I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for My own sake, and I will not remember your sins." Hebrews eight twelve says, "For I will be merciful toward their iniquities; I will remember their sins no more." And so we, as Christians, those of us who are blood-bought, who are found in the, the blood of Christ, um, we can take this to the bank. We, we can be confident without a shadow of a doubt that there is a forgiveness for sins. And again, this is so radical when you realize that it's like, is, this, is our our sins were our willful, willful actions. It was our own decisions to get into the depths. And then through the crying out of mercy, God is gracious to forgive us and to offer the forgiveness of sins in and through Christ. And this is unique in a sense that it can only come from God. Like, we as people couldn't write a better story than this. And no other religion comes even close to their salvation and to their merit being anything like what Christianity is, to what Yahweh offers and is. All other religions is you offer, you do, you work, you merit, and then God will give you your due. He will show you not mercy, but justice in giving you what is rightfully yours. Christianity is the only faith that says there's nothing we can do to bring to the table. There's nothing I can offer. There's no way I can redeem myself. It is only by His grace. It is only, can only be offered through this. And even this is radical to the culture where we live in cancel culture, where it's not just so it's not good enough if someone does something wrong to just forget them, but they must be blotted out. They must be removed, they must be canceled for their one action or one decision. Um, Spurgeon says it this way: he says, Let this this promise, this verse, let this enter your soul and dry those grim. And grim ogres and goblins of despair into the sea of forgetfulness. And so, what, um, whatever bothers, whatever bothers us, whatever weighs upon us, whatever guilt or shame we uh, experience, it won't let us forget our past or our mistakes or our failures. Um, we must remind ourselves of this truth that there is the forgiveness of sins. And Scripture is clear that when we are forgiven, God forgets and removes and blots out our iniquities and our transgressions. And as it says in Isaiah, like, come, behold, though your sins are like scarlet, like I will make you white as snow. And that is the confidence, that is the assurance that we can have with Christ. And you, you must, it's also important to remember, this is the Old Testament we're talking about. And so how they have the sacrificial system where, when sins would take place they would rightfully sacrifice a goat or a sheep or different animals to atone for their sins and they did this in faith and that is how the lord saves the old testament saints. and if you need more of a theological understanding and better explanation you can talk to alexander about it but listen to the confidence that this psalmist has in faith of what the sheeps and what the goats um exemplify the assurance of it that through these in, in faith of Christ, that they will forgive us sins. And so the, if someone, if an Old Testament saint can have this level of confidence, how much more should we have now? Now that we are downstream of the historical life and death of Jesus Christ. That there's without shadow of doubt, you can't disprove that Jesus was a real man, but even more so in his word as what it claims him to be the son of God, living in perfect obedience to the righteousness of God and dying in the place in the dead, and in the stay of, sin, of sinners um, to redeem us and to purchase us and to bring us upon himself how much more confidence should we have in this and not only in the, the facts if you will but now with the spirit residing within us making us new making us living temples for God we now have the Holy Spirit who assures us of the forgiveness of sins who reminds us of it who, who brings all this forward um, into light to us and to this and there is um, a reason that God forgives us. He doesn't just forgive us and then let us be or to stay where we are. But, as the second part of verse 4 says, "...but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared." God forgives us so that we may fear Him. And this is interesting. It's not, He forgives us so that we may love Him, or you know, uh, a lot of other things maybe you expect. But this psalmist says that there is forgiveness that we may be feared." And it's important because God forgives people, and specifically His people, so that they may become His faithful and obedient worshipers. That is what God desires out of those that are found in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And the fear of the Lord is an instrument, is a, is a way that God um, has orchestrated to bring this about greater, into greater obedience and a greater worship of who God is. And we have, I think, a lot of misconceptions Perhaps in the church, I said what the fear of the Lord is, um, and it might be worth talking about what it's not um, a lot of people a lot of people probably hear fear and they think crippling they think um, a, a fear that that prohibits you from moving forward that you know I think of like fight or flight or just like it, it cripples you It just it locks you down so that you can 't do anything about it and it's certainly not that, and neither is it a servile fear where um, we worship or serve the Lord out of fear in a sense that if we screw up, or I should probably say when we screw up, we'll be punished or beaten with the rod. And that is not what the fear of the Lord is entailing. And so this is just a quick, um, everything I could find to the book of Proverbs talking about what the fear of the Lord is. And so it says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord, um, those who fear the Lord, it prolongs their life. The fear of the Lord is more profitable than wealth. Uh, Fear of the Lord brings abundant life. Uh, those who fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord keeps one from evil. Uh, fear of the Lord results in riches and honors. Fear of the Lord breeds humility. Fear the Lord, uh, those who fear the Lord, their sleep satisfies them. Those who fear the Lord gain confidence. Those who fear the Lord receive praise, and those who fear the Lord have their prayers answered. And so, the fear of the Lord isn't this, um, like I said, crippling servile fear, but rather it is a catalyst into greater serving and loving God and being obedient to his word and to what he says. Um, because I, I, as I, I read the benefits of the fear of the Lord, and I don't think any one of us would say no to these, or, you know, sleep who satisfies or breeds humility sounds pretty appealing to me. Um, but the, the fear of the Lord helps us rightfully serve God. And it interesting enough, what it does, it almost counteracts what led the psalmist into the depths, where if we fear the Lord, we, we proceed lightly, if you will, or we have more caution, or we have a lot more self-reflection, or, or not second-guessing, that's, that's not the best word, but introspection into what we are doing and why we are doing. And so the, out of a desire to serve the Lord rightfully and to be obedient to Him, we ask ourselves, is the way I am doing this the most God-glorifying and pleasing way to the God. Like the fear of the Lord is the thing that drives us to consider our ways and to acknowledge God in all that we do. And whether that's money or relationships or how we parent, You know, the fear of the Lord is the thing that drives us out of our love for God and wanting to serve Him and make Him great and known in our lives. The fear of the Lord is the very thing that causes us to reflect and chew and ask ourselves, am I doing this to, uh, to the best of um to the name of God's glory. And so that, that's um, worth asking ourselves a question. It says here in, in verse four, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And like, this isn't necessarily optional. And so the, the, a good question would be is, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? Not again, I'm driving this home, not as a servile fear that there's now condemnation if you screw up or if you do something wrong, but do you fear the Lord in a sense that you want to live your life in as Perfect obedience as you can by his grace and want to serve him and recognize him in all of your ways. And so thus, like you you discern and you wrestle and you ask yourself, how can I do this greater and better? Not condemnation. And so what is the fruit of um, the fear of the Lord is now seen. in so verses three and four is the confidence. The fruit of the fear of the Lord can be seen in verses 5 and 6 as we move into the section of testifying, testimony. Um, However, before we get there, I'd like to just remind us that we went from the depths, the psalmist in the depths, to crying out for mercy, God answering the mercy by um, reminding him who he is and giving him assurance of the forgiveness of sins. And now, our assurance of of sins, the, um, the reason for forgiveness is so that he may be feared. And then this fear now motivates him and leads him to testify and to share what God has done for him and what he is experiencing. And if you notice, there's, a, there's also another um, change that happens here. Verses 1-4 through four is specifically the psalmist crying out and speaking to God. Now that we move um, to verses 5-8, to eight, this is the psalmist changing from not a conversation or not him crying out to God, but now him crying out to the congregation, to the people that are around him and that who he's in community with. And so what does the psalmist testify of? It says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. There are three things I like to highlight um, relatively quickly. And the first thing that the psalmist testifies of, that he proclaims, is his dependency upon God. And you see this twice as he echoes it, I wait for the Lord my soul waits. And then again in verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord. And the first thing um, to bring forth is, is the soul is, is all of Him. All of Him is dependent. All of Him waits upon the Lord. Reflecting on this, I was convicted at how often I might say I'm waiting on the Lord in something. And maybe my, my actions reflect that. And since I'm restricting myself, I'm not acting upon it. However, my thoughts is jumping years and light years ahead already thinking as if I was already in that season of life. Or another way to put it is um, a lot of times that, you know, we might say we're waiting on the Lord and maybe our actions reflect that. But actually we have a heart that grumbles and is discontent and frustrated and our heart doesn't reflect our actions. Or we might say, oh, I, it is well with my soul. I am content. But all the while your actions are trying to bring about and force God's hand to do something that and truly isn't reflecting that you're waiting on him. And so here, when it says, I, my soul waits, it's, it's all of ourselves, our heart, soul, mind, strength, all of ourselves, our actions, our words, our thoughts, our emotions, we wait upon the Lord. Not in just one area, but in all the areas, and our entire being does. And this shows dependency, um, because the, the, the dependency is show on waiting for God. And this is like an eager expectation. This isn't a begrunge it i'm stuck in traffic i'm forced to wait this isn't uh you know where the heck is domino's pizza It's two hours ago we ordered it uh, you know you're, but rather waiting on the lord is this eager expectation i think it would be um like best compared to pregnancy or to uh engagement it's like there's there's a clear like anticipation you know like i i can only imagine when TK is talking about as being pregnant as the baby, like she's not going to, she's not begrudgingly talking about like, oh, when the baby comes and nor is she not preparing herself when the baby comes. Like there's like this eager expectation that all of her actions, all of her heart posture is like looking forward to this day when the baby arrives and is preparing herself for it. In the same way, waiting upon the Lord is this eager expectation of when God does arrive, when God does deliver, when God does move. It doesn't, we're not stagnant. We don't sit still and just wait, but rather we are active. We are um, moving, and waiting is just so unnatural to us. Um, it, it's hard to sit still and be silent, or not to bring about what we desire, and especially when it's we know it's something that God like desires when it's with when it's within the will of God. Um, so often, um, there's we I, I see. Uh, good and rightful heart posture of sanctification, wanting to be sanctified wanting to overcome these, these sins that, that we feel so enslaved to and we feel lost and we feel helpless to and no matter how hard we try we can't just snap it away, we're, we're, they, they, we're stuck and so we must wait upon the Lord um, and there's just great humility in saying that I can't do it, and again I, I, I remind you, the psalmist is still in the depths in this moment The Lord hasn't delivered, and the Lord hasn't brought him out of it, but yet you can see the the confidence, and now he is testifying. I I am dependent upon God. I look to God. I wait for God. Um, So the helplessness of the psalmist being in the the depths is the same even now that he waits upon the Lord. However, the difference is the advocate, the one who comes alongside for him. Um, I, I thought about if if you are in a, let's say, no win situation, that you're not going to win um, the court case, but you have the best lawyer ever come, it's like, well, you're, you're still just as helpless in the sense that you have no power, you have no wisdom to change your circumstances. But now someone has stepped into your life who can advocate on your behalf, who can fight for you and actually can probably win. And that is the dependency um, this, this, that the, the psalmist has here on the Lord. Is that he's still as helpless as ever. However, his hope, his, his dependency is in the Lord and the Lord alone. Who can change the circumstances? Who can help him? Who can save him from his sin? And so that we're uh, asked the question um, are we truly dependent upon God? And not just in some areas, because for some of us, there's areas that are really easy to surrender to God, you know? Like, we, oh, yeah, here, Lord, here's my money, yeah, here, here's my time. It's like, oh, but my singleness, like, no, you can't touch that. Or, you know, so, so all of us have our areas that are easier to give up that are different than other people. However, it is all of us, again, the entire soul, every aspect, every realm, every layer of our lives, are we surrendering, are we showing that we are dependent upon God? And also, the, my um, second point on this is, this is um, the psalmist testifying to the people. And so my question is, do we make known how dependent we are, or do we make known how independent we are? Um, especially in light of just social media and the day and age, and being a I think we've talked about this, being a, a younger church, as we're a bunch of peers, you know, like, we're all three years within each other, I think, maybe four. And it's like, so th- there's a temptation to, sorry, Gabby, I, I, thought about it. I, um, I thought about it too late. Like, uh. um, there's a temptation, though, to make ourselves feel like, oh, I have it better put together than the next person, or like, oh, I'm the person to go to for, for wisdom, for guidance, to speak into this, and there's this temptation to make ourselves be and feel and uh, be seen as more independent of what we truly are. And when I, I think it would be wise if we follow the example of the psalmist where he makes known how dependent he is upon God. He says, like, I am waiting upon the Lord because there's nothing I can do about it and I'm not going to foolishly try to do something about it. Because the last time I did that I ended up in the depths. And so, yeah. Foddy says, if you can't say amen, say Ouch. <laughs> I'll say for myself. Ouch. <laughs> it's convicting me. Anyways, um, so what does he testify of secondly? So the first um, testimony that the psalmist has is um, his dependency upon God was the second thing the, Lord tes- uh, the psalmist testifies in. And that is God's word. And we see this in uh, verse 5. In his word I hope. And the hope has this connotation here of restlessness. Restlessness, there it is. Not anxiety, but an unsettled expectation of the realization of what is hoped for. And this can only come through God's word. God's word is a thing that informs our hope. And so often for us, we lack hope because we lack God's word. God's Word is the instrument and in the way that God has ordained to inform us of not only what to do, but what to expect, what to look forward to. If we didn't have God's Word, then we would have nothing. Not to say that God wouldn't do something. I, I, that's dangerous. God has given us His Word and His Word alone. And it's enough to satisfy us and it's enough to inform and to show us what it is that we are longing for and the promise of redemption the promise of sanctification the promise that one day all things will be made new as it talks about in revelation 21. so god's word informs our hope it structures it defines it and shows us where to put it and not to put it um i i we as a church um, try to to the best of our ability and by god's grace align everything we do in accordance to scripture and and we i hope and pray that we do that however um i think it's it was wonderful thursday night to hear some people like testify as to how special the church is in this community and what the impact has made in our lives and I, i hope and pray that's only a result of us trying to do everything we can biblically Now, obviously, other churches are biblical. However, I hope whether everything we do, uh, whether it's the Sunday service or communion or outside and how we gather and how we spend our time, and we certainly have an emphasis on God's word as as a center, and we love to preach, and we love to preach long. Uh, (laughs) uh, I hope the fruit of that is what we are experiencing in how sweet and wonderful this community is. And so thus, I, I hope and pray that we would see our need for God's Word and desire to pursue it and to apply it in every way possible to our lives and to build every aspect of our lives on God's truth. Um, it, it, I think about the, um, in the parable, the, the man who builds his house on solid foundation versus one who builds it on quicksand and, and the, the contrast in that. And so would we be people who... Through God's word, cherish it, um, seek it, know it, love it, memorize it, live it, and the, the fruit of that is just is. Who, there's no stopping. Anyways, it, yeah. Um, so yeah, what do we know if we take away God's word? Um, we don't. We have nothing, and we have it for a reason for us to steward it well, to um, appreciate it. Like you think about. If you don't know, like, just do the history of how like, the English Bible brought about. Bless you, Matty. How the English Bible was brought about and why we have it in our language today. Like, it, like, people die. There, there's so much that happened for us to get it. And even now, there are so many people who don't have a full Bible in their language. And it's such a gift, a wonderful gift from God that we are to root our hope in, and to build our foundation upon. Um, and I, I hope and pray we don't take for granted. And so often we put our hope in so many other things. Um, We put our hope in a a future spouse, or put our hope in a a new job, or more money, or a new president, or so many things. And we think that if this would just happen, then we would have a peace of mind. Then everything would be a-okay, and there would be no more worries, there would be no more stress or anxiety. And the reality is, it is only in God, and in his word, and that alone, that can build a foundation for us to stand sturdily upon and to rest in and to cling to. Thirdly, so the second first thing to testify is their dependency upon God. The psalmist does. Secondly he testifies into his um i heard the language I use actually already that God's word and, and the and, uh, importance of it. And thirdly, um the psalmist testifies to the degree of dependency. The degree of dependency. And you see this um, in the latter part of verse 6. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. I don't know how many people here have been camping outdoors when it decides to rain or snow on you. But it's it's quite miserable. It's really hard to sleep when you're cold and wet. And if you can't sleep and you can't build a fire and you can't really escape it, all you can do is just sit there until sunlight comes until the warmth comes. And so you see um, in this passage the, the longing of the dependency that the psalmist has upon God, looking to God to deliver him, to save him from the depths. And I think for most of us, it's very easy in certain seasons of life when it is the most difficult or hardest to look to God and hope to God and every moment to pray without ceasing and, and hope and pray and cry out for deliverance. Um, however, oftentimes, though, we become numb or grow dim and we become forgetful and spiritual amnesia uh, sits in. And uh, would we pursue and long to be like the psalmist who just, like, would we in, in every day of every moment, would we be cold and shivering and not able to sleep and not able to do anything to change our experiences? But would we long To taste the deliverance of the Lord and for His presence to come upon us and to greet us where we are, um, where nothing else satisfies us, nothing else temporarily fixes what we are going through this side of um, eternity. Okay, I'm almost done. This testifying overflows into exhorting or preaching, if you will, in verses seven or eight says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Uh, what, when you have truly experienced and tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord, how can you not proclaim? How can you not share? How can you not testify to what God has done in your life? And what is there to preach? What is there to um, testify or to exhort, to encourage people with other than the steadfast love, the hesed, the covenantal love of Christ that is offered, that is promised, that is lavished upon us as believers who are covered in His precious blood. But also the the reminder twofolds, the steadfast love of Christ and secondly the plentiful redemption that Christ even now is advocating for us in the Holy of Holies and in and through Him all things are being made new. And that he is delivering us. He is bringing us to that final day. When no longer will there be tears. No longer will there be sin or wickedness. And no longer can we, even if we tried, put ourselves into the depths. But rather God will hold us fast and keep us um, in perfect communion and fellowship with him. And so if we have tasted and seen, we must exhort. Um, I, I don't know if I said this at the beginning, but I... I um, Labeled this uh, sermon, if you will, rinse and repeat, because this is the human experience. This is what we go through. We find ourselves in the depths, usually because of our own sinfulness, our own foolishness, and from that we cry out for mercy. And God is so gracious and kind to answer it, and he reminds us of who he is. And not only does he do that, but he pours the Spirit out upon us. He reminds us of his steadfast love. He reminds us of all his promises within Scripture and who he is and what he plans to do in our lives. Then we go and we exhort. We, we proclaim it. We share it to anyone and everyone who would listen. And then as that wears off, we'll find ourselves once again in the depths. And this is the human cycle. Um, however, what is, Alistair Begg says this, he says "The, the psalm is for the encouragement of the many out of the experience of the one. That not everyone here is in the depths, not everyone here is on the mountaintop right now, but this is unique to one specific person. However, it's not unique in a sense none of us escape this, all of us go through this in the Lord's providence. And so some of you are here right now and you're in the depths, you are Blinded because of your sin, and it has led you deeper into despair, and you don't feel the presence of the Lord. You don't feel God's favor upon you, and you truly feel it in depth. And you're believing lies and falsehoods that lead you deeper into it. Some of you guys might be crying out for the Lord's mercy, and you're you're just now being reminded of how good it is, how good God is, and how sweet His promises are. So you might be testifying that God has look how God has delivered me from the death. Look how I. Trust in him. Look how I am bringing every aspect of my life in submission to his yoke and to his burden. And others of those um, are exhorting, encouraging. Remember God's love. Remember that he is making all things new. Remember that his promises are sure and every promise is yes and amen in Christ. However, um, all of our, uh, let's say, depths are different. And since We all have very unique experiences and stories that we go through that the person to your left and to your right haven't yet or never will. And that is no um, mistake. That, That is no accident. In the Lord's providence and His grace and His good and perfect will, He has given us transgressions and trials and sufferings and hardships so that we cannot become our own superhero and say, look how I have overcome this but so that we can exalt him in it and also share and proclaim that to anyone everyone would listen. And so as a church, will we not be people who are independent or have it all figured out or have our lives in a row? But would we be people who are open and honest and vulnerable where we are and share what God is doing in our lives, wherever we are on this cycle, if you will. Um, Again, for the glory of God. It's all for his glory. It's all for him. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord. You are the sovereign one. Your scripture is just so clear, God, that um, there is nothing that is out of your control. And even as we reflected in the beginning uh, over the meditation, Lord, you are sovereign over all of your creation, Lord. And because of that, we, we praise you and, uh, because you're just so worthy of that and that alone, regardless of what you have done. But even more so, what have you done in and through Christ, Lord? What do we, ha- what do we not have in Christ that we uh, don't need, God? You have provided everything. In, in Him, you have done more than we could ever ask or more than we could even imagine, God. And so we're just so thankful. We're so thankful to worship You as the One who did not uh, spare His own Son, but willingly gave Him up. And Christ, You, for the joy set before You, endured the cross, Lord. To purchase us and to redeem us and to bring us upon yourself. And so, Lord, we thank you for the work that you are doing within us, Lord. We know that there is a forgiveness of sins, Lord, that when you say that it is finished, Lord, that is a sure and fine promise, Lord. And so, God, I pray that you would just assure us of that this today, not this morning. Today, God, remind us of this promise. Remind us of this reality, God. No matter how great the voices are around us in our heads, telling us that we stand condemned, that we are guilty, that our shame should abound, that we should beat ourselves up more. Um, Lord, would we just dry it all out for your word and for what your word says. Thank you for the promises and how rich they are. Thank you, Lord, that you desire to make Christ known through broken uh, vessels such as us as great sinners. Um, would we, Lord, just praise you tonight as people who have been redeemed, who have tasted and seen and experienced the forgiveness of Christ through his precious blood. Um, we just thank you and praise you um, for... From Him and through Him and to Him is all things. Amen.